Here it is. From deep inside your audio device of choice. It's, it's like he had to think about it, the guy, for a minute there. Well, ladies and gentlemen. No, I shouldn't kid about that. I really shouldn't because. Uh, so here's here's the karma train arriving with exquisite timing. I shall explain. I shall proceed to explain moment uh, instantly. Uh, New Orleans hosts a lot of con- conferences and conventions every year. Great convention city. Come on down. And um, this week, we happen to be hosting two that I know of. Conference of Mayors, mayors from across the country, being hosted of course, the mayor of New Orleans played host, Mayor Mitch Landrieu, and the National Association of Black Journalists, African-American news people from around the country gathered here as well. So what happens here when all those folks are in New Orleans? Well, we could go a little bit of rain. Of course, in summertime, New Orleans gets rain every day. Like, like the milk, it's delivered. This was a big rain. Nothing. Well, it was a big rain. Let's leave it at that. And um, parts of the city flooded. You heard that. You may not have heard the rest of the story. The sewerage and water board, which runs the giant pumps, the so-called wood pumps, although they're not made of wood, that have dewatered the city regularly and dependably, for over a hundred years, are run by the sewage and wa- sewage and water <laughs> sewage and water board. And officials from that board last Saturday, as the city was flooding, said all the pumps are working. Now these pumps are so good that in 1953, when the Netherlands a protection system failed and they flooded, this is where they came to learn how to do things better to watch these pumps. So it was nothing against these pumps, except that they were not in service when the sewerage and water board officials said the pumps were working. They later amended their statement to say, well, the pumps that were working were working. That is to say, we were getting all the capacity out of the pumps that were not out of service, which is to say eight pumps were down. Um... And then Wednesday, as the city was erupting in understandable fire and fury, to coin a phrase, there was a fire at one of the other turbines that power the pumps. The pumps have backup turbines in case the uh, electric utility decides to uh, take the day off. Sometimes happens. And there was a fire there. And the sewerage and water board, in a stunning display of self-sufficiency, didn't call the fire department to put out the fire. It's like, uh, you know, if you need your your uh, sewer pipe, something to be done with it, call the fire department. Sewer, sewerage and water board put out the fire. What's the problem? So the karmic aspect of all this is that these people all work for the mayor of New Orleans, who had to uh, ask some of them for their resignations as other mayors from around the country watched, relieved that at least their hotel rooms weren't taking on water. Yet, summer is still with us. 
but they're gone. Now, ladies and gentlemen, the uh, <laughs> President Trump is uh, at his country club in Bedminster, New Jersey. Put the bed back in Bedminster. And um, you know that yes, uh, Saturday here in the United States, in Charlottesville, Virginia, a really unpleasant event erupted, a planned rally by neo-Nazis and Ku Klux Klan supporters, among others, erupted into violence. One woman was killed when uh, one of those folks, to use a Obamaism, um, backed up into a crowd of counter-protesters, people protesting the presence of Nazis and KKKers. And <laughs> President Trump issued a statement where he read a strong-worded denunciation of hatred and bigotry and then ad-libbed on many sides, on many sides. And um, Republicans, Democrats, um, pretty much everybody except members of the alt-right have exploded in outrage because a guy who spent most of his presidential campaign saying, the problem with Obama is he can't call radical Islamic terrorism by its name. But the same guy refuses to call domestic white supremacist terrorism by its name. Now, yes, all that's true. Somebody else that he doesn't call out, and, and it's been noticed uh, that President Trump, in the welter of critiques he delivers on other people, uh, does not deliver any critiques about Vladimir Putin. And people have their theories about it. His explanation, uh, or that that's been given by his supporters, is, hey, Putin leads the only other country in the world with as many nukes as we have. Isn't, wouldn't it be a good idea to get along with him? So it, the president's failure to call out the uh, Ku Klux Klan and neo-Nazis here in America could be interpreted as him thinking they've got nukes too. Uh, saying farewell to the great Barbara Cook, this is Hello, Welcome to the Show. Here I am, my heart breaking, forced to glitter, forced to be gay.
broken worldly things take the place of honor lost? Can they compensate for my fallen state, purchased as they were at such a such an awful cost? Bracelets, lavaliers, can they dry my tears? Can they blind my eyes to shame? Can the brightest brooch shield me from reproach? Can the purest diamond purify my name? And yet, of course, these trinkets are endearing. I'm also red, my sapphire is a star. I wore the like a 20-carat earring. If I'm not pure and least, my jewels are. Enough, enough. I'll take their diamond necklace and show my noble star. From just beside Lake Pontchartrain in New Orleans, Louisiana, I'm Harry Shearer, welcoming you to this edition of the show. And now let's follow the dollar. When 12 doctors has received money from drug companies marketing prescription opioid medication. That's according to a study released this week reported in the Washington Post. Are they dealers or just enablers? Researchers at Boston Medical Center found that from 2013 to 2015, 68,000 doctors received more than $46 million in payments from drug companies selling powerful painkillers. Researchers believe it's the first study to look at the practice of pharmaceutical companies marketing, marketing opioids to physicians. The next step is to understand these links between payments, said a pediatrician and author of the study and prescribing practices and overdose deaths. More than 52,000 people died of drug overdoses in 2015. According to the CDC, drug overdoses sharply increased during the first nine months of last year, driven by increases in opioid deaths, especially from heroin and fentanyl, the powerful synthetic narcotic. For many people, it's very common the first opioid they're ever exposed to is from a prescription, said the pediatrician author Scott Hadland. Doctors were paid the most for the promotion of fentanyl, which is typically used in hospitals to treat post-surgical pain, cancer patients, and for end-of-life care. 
Most of the fentanyl driving the increase in deaths is illicitly manufactured overseas and cut into heroin. According to the study, companies were not aggressively marketing tamper-proof versions of the pills, which were created in response to the crisis. It's an indicator that opioids are really being heavily marketed for pain, said the researcher. He's alarmed that family physicians received the largest number of payments. Other pain relief methods, NSAIDs, such as aspirin and ibuprofen, weren't as heavily marketed as opioids. Interesting fun fact, the latter are habit-forming. The study, which was published in the American Journal of Public Health, says about two-thirds of the payments came from speaking fees. I'm glad you invited me here tonight. Good night. About 700 doctors raked in nearly 83% of the total money spent marketing to physicians. Pharmaceutical companies spent freely around the country, but some of the states hit hardest by the opioid crisis, including Indiana, Ohio, and New Jersey, actually experienced the most payments to doctors. Isn't that a nutty coincidence? The researchers did not include drug companies or doctors in their research. The data came from the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. So let's shut them down, please, before that happens again. Now, ladies and gentlemen, little little tidbits, actually actual bits of information about our freedom-loving friends in Saudi Arabia. First of all, have you heard of Saudi Arabian singer Abdallah al-Shahani? He's big there. And yet, he was reportedly arrested during a music festival in the city of Taif for dabbing. The move is banned in Saudi Arabia and is considered highly controversial due to its perceived ties to drug culture. And they don't mean fentanyl. Footage of al-Shahani's dab exploded over social media and prompted an apology from the singer who tweeted, I apologize to our respected government and to my audience for unintentionally and spontaneously making the dance move at the festival. Please accept my apology. Their means of accepting his apology was to arrest him. The Saudi Interior Ministry's National Commission for Combating Drugs recently banned the move because they consider it to refer to marijuana use. Now, wait a minute. I Oh, sorry. A poster published by the industry warns people about the dangers of this move on the youth and society and is warning against imitating it, unquote. I like people who still refer to the youth, collective noun. They do that in Saudi Arabia. Believed to have originated in Atlanta's hip-hop scene, dabbing is where a person ducks their head forward, ducks his or her head forward to their bent elbow. It took American culture by storm. You noticed that, didn't you? You've been dabbing. A little dab will do you. It continues despite running its course, according to uh, Hip Hop DX. Everyone from 95-year-old actress Betty White to politicians Hillary Clinton and Paul Ryan to countless athletes have been seen dabbing, but not in Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabian Airlines, also known as Saudia, is the national carrier of Saudi Arabia, hence the name. Otherwise, they get sued. But they have now warned passengers about the way they, passengers, dress. Warning that those who are, quote, clothed in a manner that would cause discomfort or offense to other passengers, unquote, could be denied boarding. The the restrictions, pardon me, get all choked up thinking about 
offensive dress. The restrictions apply to, quote, women exposing legs or arms or wearing too thin or too tight clothes and men wearing shorts exposing legs, unquote, as well as passengers who are barefoot. The dress code has provoked outrage on social media. But isn't that the job of social media is to is to have outrage be provoked? It's referred to within a list of rules about passengers' code of conduct on the website. A separate page of the website, created to draw attention to the dress code, appears to have been taken down. It was written in English, too. Despite being contacted by the British newspaper The Telegraph, Saudi has yet to confirm whether these, restrict- these requirements apply to all passengers across all classes on the plane or whether male passengers would also be refused boarding if they wear clothes that are too thin or tight or expose their arms. Has, has the Telegraph asked restaurants that require men to wear jackets and ties if they... It is yet to clarify, Saudi Arabian Airlines, how the dress code will be enforced during the flight <laughs> and what might be the consequences for any passengers who remove any clothing that would expose their arms and legs during the flight. Sir, would you please put that... Uh, madam, would you please cut the, the coat, this jacket back? It is also yet to confirm when the dress code was issued and why it was imposed at all. Saudi Arabia's former head of tourism says the dress requirements were not exclusive to that airline, but were issued by the International Air Transport Association, enforced in varying degrees by different airlines, but IATA has denied those claims. It's entirely at the discretion of the airline, dress code policy is, said an IATA spokesperson. Saudi says it claims all, it takes all the measures it possibly can to maximize passengers' comfort and convenience, and its website advises passengers to wear comfortable clothes when you travel. Saudi Arabian Airlines was named the world's most improved airline this year at the annual World Airline Awards, hosted by Ryan Secret. No, ranked 51st, up from 82nd last year. Wow. They're on fire. I mean, they're doing well. The airline previously came under criticism a couple of years ago when it denied claims it was considering enforcing a gender split on its flights after it reportedly received complaints from male passengers who were unhappy about other men sitting next to their wives and female family members, and a complaint about a flight attendant being too, quote, flirty, unquote. Up from, up to 52nd. We're 50, we're number 52. It's a proud boast indeed. Our freedom-loving friends, ladies and gentlemen, say it with me now, in Saudi Arabia. Now, he's not a general, he commands no troops, he's not an inspector, he peeks at no snoops, he's an inspector general. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. News of inspectors general, because we can. And because they, they sometimes actually tell the truth about what's going on. It's the uh, whole motivation behind the, the bit. The U.S. government's Afghanistan watchdog has asked the Pentagon to declassify a report about alleged sexual abuse of children by members of the Afghan security forces. That's still going on. We heard about that, oh, at least, well, I think earlier this year. And now it's later this year. The request is noted in the Special Inspector General for Afghanistan Reconstruction's latest quarterly report. It also says violence has increased by 21% since the beginning of March, and revenues produced by the the country's opium crop have doubled 
or actually doubled between 2015 and 2016, topping more than $3 billion. The classified report on sexual abuse, which the Inspector General recently issued to Congress, deals with how the U.S. military and State Department are implementing laws that prohibit the government from providing aid to another nation's security forces if there is credible information that human rights have been violated. Yeah, <laughs> we really abide by that one. Ask the Saudis. At the request of a bipartisan, bicameral group of 93 members of Congress, the uh, inspector general this quarter issued a report to Congress on the implementation of those laws because DOD has classified much of the information on which the report is based. The report is classified. The inspector general now requests that DOD declassify the report so it can be released to the public. A Defense Department spokesman, DOD is the Department of Defense, said the report is undergoing a security review. The official could not say why the information was classified in the first place. Violence slows a bit during the winter months in Afghanistan as cold temperatures make travel more uncomfortable. But the number of incidents is also slightly up from the same quarter in 2016. Afghanistan's domestic revenues are down nearly 25% over this time last year. I guess the pomegranate business is, you know... It had that boom is over, but the local narcotics trade is doing okay, producing eighty percent of the world's opium. The cigar special inspector general report provides insight into the enormous amount of money that has been spent on all facets of the war in Afghanistan over the past fifteen years. From that extra twenty-eight million spent on the U.S. choosing a proprietary camouflage pattern for the uniforms, to nearly eight point six million granted for the, produ- for the production of an Afghan version of Sesame Street. The report finds that the U.S. has now spent an estimated $714 billion on both war fighting and reconstruction there. Can we take it to a trillion, please, people? Can we do that? Let's, let's get to the big T. What do you say? The uh, inspector general says U.S. personnel are adopting a siege mentality and are unable to provide oversight over billions of dollars in reconstruction and security spending. Hunkering down behind blast walls, while positive from a security perspective, damages not only the U.S. civilian mission, but also handicaps handicaps the U.S. military mission to create a stable and functioning Afghan military and police free from corruption and incompetence, the report says. Further details show worsening fighting, rising casualties among Afghan security forces, 2,500 killed in action and thousands more wounded since January. More than 12,000 Afghan military personnel are unaccounted for. An unknown number of them are so-called ghosts that draw pay. But uh, don't have, uh, as Dick Cheney once said, have other priorities than reporting for duty. News. Inspectors General, ladies and gentlemen, let's get let's get it up to the big T. Come on, we can waste more money. We can waste more money than we have. Why? But why all the uh, all the dawdling? And now, news of the warm, won't you? Award-winning feature of this program. How'd that happen? Latest report on rising sea levels released in January of this year by 
The National Oceanographic and Atmospheric Administration predicts the worsening scenario of global sea levels rising between 0.3 and 2.5 meters by the year 2100. That's an increase from the group's December 2012 estimate. The world's most extensive study of a major storm front striking the Australian coast has revealed a previously unrecognized danger from climate change. As storm patterns fluctuate, waterfront areas once thought safe are likely to be hammered and damaged as never before, like the world has never seen. The study was led by engineers at the University of New South Wales in Sydney, published in the Nature Journal Scientific Reports. If you have waterfront property or infrastructure that has been previously sheltered from the impacts of extreme waves, this is worrying news, says the lead author. What isn't? Deadline Washington, if climate change is not curbed, increased precipitation could substantially overload U.S. waterways with excess nitrogen, according to a new study from uh, two different universities published by Science. Excess nutrient pollution increases the likelihood of events that severely impair water quality, like hypoxia. The study study found impacts will be especially strong in the Midwest and Northeast. Well, since the Midwest has been contributing to hypoxia in the Gulf, it's, it's really only fair. About 35% of British Columbia's 11,000 active oil wells, abandoned wells, and water injection wells in the northeastern part of the province are leaking significant amounts of methane. That's a very powerful greenhouse gas. It's more powerful, 20 or 30 times more powerful than carbon dioxide, but more short-lived. You know, 6 of 1. The report, six of one out the other. The report will be released later this summer. Researchers with the David Suzuki Foundation measured leaks from abandoned, suspended, shut-in, and active oil wells. And according to the senior science and policy advisor to the foundation, the study found that the average rate of flow of methane gas from surface casing vents from oil wells was conservatively estimated between 9 and 11 cubic meters per day. That's 14.2 million cubic meters a year from roughly 11,000 active oil wells alongside abandoned, suspended, and water disposal wells in British Columbia. A huge problem and issue in this province, said the researcher. Both provinces have similar legislation that gives industry an indefinite time period to clean up inactive wells. Well, that's a gift. Christmas comes early when you're in the oil business. It's extremely unlikely 2014, 2015, and 2016 would have been the warmest consecutive years on record without the influence of human-caused climate change, according to the authors of a new study. Temperature records were first broken in 2014. That year became the hottest year since global temperature records began way back in 1880. Those were surpassed in 2015 and 2016, so last year was the hottest year ever recorded. Combining historical temperature data and state-of-the-art Climate model simulations, the new study finds the likelihood of experiencing consecutive record-breaking global temperatures three years in a row without the effects of human-caused climate change is no greater than 0.03%, and the likelihood of three consecutive year record-breaking years happening any time since 2000 is no more than 0.7%. When anthropogenic warming is considered, the likelihood of three consecutive record-breakers any time since 2000 rises to as high as 50%. That means human-caused climate change is very likely to blame for the three consecutive record hot years. According to this study, accepted for publication in geophysical research letters. Who, who sends letters? 
The wind energy industry in the United States reached an important milestone in 2016 when it passed the generating capacity of hydroelectric power for the first time to become the nation's top renewable generating source. Wind energy's growth shows few signs of slowing down. The total amount of wind capacity in the queue, that is to say waiting to be connected to the grid, represents 34% of all generating capacity in line, higher than all other generating sources. This according to the Department of Energy. Does Rick Perry know about this? The wind energy industry added more than 8,200 megawatts of capacity last year. That's 20% of all, 27% of all energy capacity additions for that year. These reports come from... Uh, the Department of Energy, Rick Perry, really got to get a control over this. The wind industry continues to install significant amounts of new capacity and supplied about 6% of total U.S. electricity last year, said the DOE Acting Assistant Secretary for Energy Efficiency. A combination of federal subsidies, state mandates, and technological advancements continue to help drive new wind capacity additions. Well, we'll take care of that. And um, you know that in addition to the hottest temperature last year, the highest sea levels ever recorded. They've been higher, but I mean recorded since man had dominion. Extremes in rain cycles and declines in global ice and snow cover. And uh, it was about 500 authors convened by NOAA saying their effects are due both to long-term global warming and shorter-term weather events like El Nino. I blame El Nino. News of the warm, ladies and gentlemen. A copyrighted feature of this broadcast. Charming, romantic, the perfect cafe. Then, as if it isn't bad enough, a violin. Candles and wine, tables for two. discreetly sympathetic quietly sit around and the book I make believe nothing is wrong how long can I pretend please make it wrong my heart. 
from New Orleans. This is Le Show. And now, ladies and gentlemen, the apologies of the week. Another singer apologizes. This time, the singer of a particularly controversial rendition of the national anthem in Colville, Utah. Wonder what they do there. The off-key performance caused many to wonder whether singer and local resident Jenny Gottney was completely sober, though others have speculated she may not have been able to hear properly. Gottney posted an apology on her Facebook page saying she was incredibly sorry and extremely embarrassed. I thought it would be a great fit. I was excited. I'd never performed in an arena before. She said, I know it was awful. I accept responsibility. I just want to move forward and make it right. My intentions were absolutely not to be disrespectful to our country or the national anthem, and most importantly, not to hurt anyone at all. She continued, I wasn't hammered, but after listening to my own video I had recorded, I absolutely can see why I was accused of being hammered. Unquote. Summit County Manager Tom Fisher said the singer has performed fine in the past. He doesn't know what caused the performance to be the way it was. Summit County expressed a sincere apology to anyone who attended the 2017 Demolition Derby and felt the performance of the national anthem did not meet reasonable expectations of decorum, said Summit County officials. Come for the de- when you know Demolition Derby, come for the decorum, stay for the. <laughs> Gartney said she had difficulties with the speaker system and how the sound echoed through the arena. The county says in the future all singers will be escorted early into the venue where they can do sound checks. What a good idea. I guess good ideas come late to Utah. The driver of a truck bearing a construction company's name shown in a video speeding down a heavily flooded mid-city New Orleans street and pushing wakes of water onto inundated cars last week has been fired. The video, which has garnered a lot of views on Facebook, catches a white pickup truck racing down the street with water up to the truck's bumper, then without slowing. Along the way, the truck is sloshing water into flooded cars and against the base of flooded homes. The video clearly shows the words Gulf Coast Green Construction. As New Orleans natives, we've all experienced flooding and understand the neighborhood's reaction. Please understand the Gulf Coast does not condone this behavior. We're dedicated to the building and betterment of our city. We'd like to apologize for the carelessness of this employee during such a sensitive time, the company's Facebook message states. One of the owners says he was completely appalled by the video. He apologized on behalf of the company. He confirmed the driver had been fired. It's mind-blowing, he says, that someone could be that inconsiderate. Unquote. No, I don't know about that. United Airlines has apologized to the owners of a dog who died in an aircraft cargo hold during a flight from Houston to San Francisco, the latest death of an animal under the airline's care. The Rasmussen family's five-year-old King Charles Spaniel Lulu was aboard the United plane on Sunday when it was delayed on the tarmac for two hours before taking off. The family said the dog died in the cargo hold had been cleared to to fly by a vet days before. We are so sorry to learn of Lulu's passing and have reached out to our customer to offer our condolences and assistance. United said in a statement, we're conducting a thorough review of this incident. According to DOT data, United had nine of the 26 deaths of animals reported last year during air transport, more than any other airline. Same airline where the giant rabbit died during a trip from Britain to the Iowa State Fair. Talent manager Michael Einfeld has written a public apology to friend, colleagues, and clients after his former assistant posted his misogynistic emails on social media. Among the offensive things the woman said the Michael Einfeld management owner wrote about her, someone should sew her private parts shut, and I'm never hiring a girl again. 
he uh, sent her an apology soon after he saw her Facebook post. I apologize for venting like a misogynistic F blank 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 T. I'm an a-hole. If you come back, we can play Nazi death camp. You can beat me and put me in the oven. I am truly sorry. Classy. Classy guy. Talent manager. Who would think? Usually, you know. Uh, amid the U.S. tensions with North Korea, a conservative talk show host for a Dallas radio station and NRA TV, that would be the National Rifle Association's TV thing, appeared to imply in his tweet that North Korea should attack Sacramento. Let's send a note to North Korea that Sacramento changed its name to Guam, Grant Stinchfield tweeted. The tweet has since been, since been deleted. Stinchfield apologized for the tweet. I regret making a joke about such a serious topic, and I have deleted the tweet. It was a mistake, and I apologize. But I got a, a good show. A billionaire hedge fund manager has apologized for an online post saying a black state senator has done more damage to people of color than anyone who has ever donned a hood for, because of her support for teachers' unions. Daniel Loeb issued a statement saying he regrets the language he used in the Facebook post about a Yonkers Democrat. Loeb is a top donor to Democratic Governor Andrew Cuomo and a leading supporter of charter schools. I regret the language I use in expressing my passion for educational choice. He said, I apologize to Senator Stuart Cousins and anyone I offended. A British real estate agent that drew up a map of where to live in the United Kingdom to avoid any nuclear impact from World War III has apologized for the stunt. Basketball star Kevin Durant apologized for calling India a rough country, which is 20 years behind the world, claimed his comments were taken out of context. I'd still like to have him on my team. Arcade Fire have apologized for the social media campaign accompanying the release of their new album, which has seen the band use Twitter to promote dress codes at their shows and post a series of fake news stories. Fake news! It's fake news! Maybe they just want people to fly Saudi Arabian Airlines. And Walmart has condemned a display inside one of its stores that appeared to market firearms as back-to-school items. It was working to identify which of its stores put up the exhibit. The sign reading, Own the school year like a hero, was placed directly above a glass case Filled with guns. The apologies of the week, ladies and gentlemen. Copyrighted feature of this broadcast. Yes, <laughs> President Trump is at his uh, country club in Bedminster, New Jersey. But he really has taken pains to uh, let us all know that it's not a vacation. He's had meetings. He's had uh, conferences. Uh, he's issued statements. Yes, he's he's been on the green, the fairway and the stuff, and, the, the, you know, had some golf clubs in his hands from time to time. But it's really important for him that you know that it's not really on vacation. In New Jersey.
Dedicated to Rick Perry's Department of Energy. As I travel down the back roads of this home I love so much, every carpenter and cowboy, every lame man on a garage, they're all talking about a feeling, about a taste that's in the air. They're all talking about this mighty wind that's blowing everywhere. Oh, a mighty wind's a blowing, it's kinking up the sand. It's blowing out a message to every woman, child, and man. Yes, some mighty winds are blowing across the land and across the sea. It's blowing peace and freedom. It's blowing equality. From a lighthouse in Bar Harbor to a bridge called Golden Gates. From a trawler down in Shreveport to the shore of one great lake. There's a star on the horizon and it's burning like a flare. It's lighting up this mighty wind that's blowing everywhere. Oh, 
Now, ladies and gentlemen, news of our friend the Atom. Clean, safe, too cheap to meet. Safe, cheap, too cheap to meet. Cheap, safe, too safe to meet. Safe, safe, too safe to meet. Addy the Atom is uh, not with us again today. He's uh, being interviewed for a job as uh, communications director of the Trump administration. Radiation topping the government's set limit, has been detected in about 190 vehicles removed from the premises of the Fouke number 1 nuclear plant after the outbreak of the nuclear crisis. This just learned now, apparently, by the Mainichi newspaper in Japan. Some of the cars were sold on the used car market. Two others remain unaccounted for, according to TEPCO. Approximately 1,700 vehicles were parked on the premises of the power station when the nuclear crisis broke out. Of those, about 600 were owned by TEPCO employees or, company, or contractors. Over a 12-day period until radiation screenings began, people could drive the vehicles out of the premises of the plant without any checks being made or written or cut. The Economy, Trade, and Ministry, uh, Industry Ministry instructed TEPCO five years ago to conduct a follow-up probe into the use of the vehicles out of fear that the next owners of the cars could be exposed to radiation without knowing the vehicles were contaminated. The power company conducted a survey at employees and contracted companies that parked their cars on the premises, confirmed about 460 vehicles were brought out of the plant by April two years ago. It was learned that radiation levels for around 190 of the vehicles exceeded government safety standards. Some of them were found with radiation nearly 10 times over the limit. All of those over the limit were collected from their owners and are now stored on TEPCO's premises in a highly, in a highly contaminated, difficult-to-return zone. I know the feeling. TEPCO is considering how to dispose of these heavily contaminated vehicles. One official says, We'd like to continue searching for the two vehicles that remain unaccounted for and respond to the situation in an appropriate manner. But those are two we don't have to store, so what the heck? He didn't say that. He thought it. In the early days of atomic energy, the federal government powered up an experimental reactor in Idaho with an ambitious goal, create a wonder fuel. The reactor was one of the first breeder reactors designed to make its own new plutonium fuel while it generated electricity, solving what scientists at the time thought was a shortage of uranium. 
plant went into operation in 1964, kept the lights on at the National Lab for three decades, but enthusiasm eventually waned for Bria reactors owing to safety concerns, you know, the plutonium thing, high costs, and the surprising fact that there's plenty of uranium. uranium. Today, its legacy is 26 metric tons of highly radioactive waste. The reactor was shut down in 1994 under a legal settlement with Ohio regulators the next year. The Department of Energy, hi, Rick Perry, you listening, pledged to have the waste treated and ready to transport out of the state by 2035. This according to the Los Angeles Times. There's still the chances of that happening now appear slim. A special treatment plant is having so many problems and delays, it could take many decades past the deadline to finish the job of treating the waste. The process doesn't work as a physicist at the Union of Concerned Scientists. It turned out to be harder to execute and less reliable than they promised. Sounds like life itself. The delays have also, surprise, fueled a massive increase in costs. The cleanup was originally estimated about $500 million. Now, a billion. Hey, we spend that in Afghanistan in a week. The waste is one of many unusual radioactive concoctions that came out of federal weapons and civilian power research programs and now require complex technologies to treat. The acting chief of the Energy Department's Environmental Management Program recently ordered a review of the entire $6 billion a year radiation cleanup effort. I blame the breeders. The um, oh, One of the problems is um, that uh, unlike uranium, the plutonium fuel was bonded to sodium to improve heat transfer inside the reactor. The sodium presents an unusual waste problem. Highly reactive, it can become explosive when it comes in contact with water and is potentially too unstable to put in any future underground dump. So now the government had to uh, develop a process known as pyroprocessing. I like pyro. The spent fuel parts from the reactor are placed in a chemical bath. What could be wrong with a bath? And are subjected to an electrical current which draws off the sodium onto a number, another material. The project manager said in 2000 they could treat five metric tons annually, complete the job in six years. The uh, Energy Department's own analysis assumed the treatment plant would work around the clock every day of the year without downtime. In 2012, no waste at all was processed. 15% of the waste has been processed, an average of one-fourth of a metric ton per year, 20 times slower than originally expected. It's hard to foresee the future in the nuke business, as in many others. The Washington State Department of Health last month suspended indefinitely the shipment of radioactive waste from from the state's sole nuclear power plant. Internal documents obtained by television station KING5 revealed that the Columbia Generating Station, operated by Energy Northwest, made repeated errors in its shipping of radioactive waste in violation of state and federal regulations, dating all the way back to 2014. There have been multiple deficiencies with the shipments of radioactive waste, resulting in noncompliance with federal, U.S., and state of Washington requirements. That says uh, Robbie Peake a quality service supervisor for the energy company, in an inter-office memo. He characterized the problems as significant and wrote that the pattern of errors has led to, quote, a loss of regulatory confidence, unquote. Additionally, incorrect details within the shipping manifest, he says, can increase risk 
to the health and safety of the public. The most recent event caused the Department of uh, Health in Washington State to revoke the plant's shipping rights for the third time in the last three years. Here's what led to the ban. Inspectors at the state's low-level radioactive waste dump found a July 20 shipment of waste was far more radioactive than what was listed on the shipping manifest. Because of the nature of violations found in this shipment, authorization to use the commercial low-level radioactive waste disposal site has been suspended indefinitely, said the Department of Health. Columbia Generating Station is near Hanford. Not affiliated with it, though. Not not as big a problem as Hanford. But still, Energy Northwest Chief Communication Officer, Anthony Scaramucci, no, Mike Paoli, downplayed the incident. He described it as a paperwork mix-up. The driver was given the wrong manifest. There's no public health or safety issue now. Yet the interoffice memo authorized by peak called for an immediate stop work order, meaning all shipping of radioactive materials off-site must cease until certain corrective actions are taken. That's in addition to the state's action and is a highly unusual step for a company to take peak who's with the company, described 12 separate shipping deficiencies between October 2014 to July 2017. Corrective actions, he says, have been ineffective at preventing recurrence. It's the damn paperwork. Contaminated filters arrived at the state's dump, measuring a radiation level seven times greater than what was listed on the shipping manifest. That was the most serious violation that occurred in November last year. The damn paperwork, ladies and gentlemen, News of our friend the Adam. Clean, cheap, safe, too much paperwork to meter. Ladies and gentlemen, that's going to conclude this week's edition of the show. The program returns next week at the same time over these same stations over NPR worldwide throughout Europe, the USN 440 cable system in Japan, around the world through the facilities of the American Forces Network up and down the east coast of North America via the shortwave giant WBCQ, the planet 7.49 megahertz. On the Mighty 104 in Berlin, on Soho Radio in London, around the world via the Internet at two different locations, live and archive, whenever you want it. HarryShare.com and KCSN.org. Available for your smartphone through Stitcher.com. Available as a free podcast. Who does that? Hands? At Sideshow Network's SoundCloud, maybe. iTunes, TuneIn.com, and WWNO.org. And it'd be just like getting rid of the damn paperwork. I thought we were living in a paperless thing. If you'd agree to join with me then. But you are. Thank you very much. Uh Uh-huh. A tip of the show, chapeau to the San Diego, Pittsburgh, Chicago, in exile and Hawaii desks. Thanks, as always, to Pam Halstead and to Jenny Lawson here at WWNO New Orleans for help with today's broadcast. The email address of this program, if you use email... It's right at harryshearer.com. And I'm on Twitter at theharryshearer. Stay in touch, won't you? Or don't. See if I... 
The show comes to you from Century Progress Productions and originates through the facilities of WWNO New Orleans' flagship station of the Change is Easy Radio Network. So long from New Orleans.